You can be turning in your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, as we continue on, we're getting closer to, uh, to what's referred to as Jesus' passion or his death, burial, and resurrection. Last week we looked at the Last Supper, and as I had said there, there's so much to uh, unpack that, that we didn't have time to do, which again is why I'm excited about the idea of us being able to celebrate um, that Passover and have a, a Jewish person explain to us uh, what a lot of those things mean. Um, I know as I have learned about that, there is so much fulfillment in the book of Matthew. I'll, I'll remind you that the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each have a specific emphasis. This is why we have four of them, because they have different audiences and different purposes. And for Matthew, his purpose in his Gospel is to proclaim Jesus as uh, the King of Israel and the King of Kings, as the Messiah or the Anointed One uh, from the line of David that fulfills uh, all of God's promises to Israel. This is Matthew's goal, and so this is why uh, he uh, assumes a lot of the Jewish customs in his work, whereas the Gospel of Luke, which is probably one of my favorites of the four, explains a lot more of the customs because it's assuming a mixed audience of Jews and Gentiles, whereas Matthew is not. He's assuming that we are Jewish when we read this, and so uh, sometimes we have to unpack things a little more because he's not explaining things that a Jewish reader would have naturally understood about the passage. And so now, to give you the timeline, we're, we're coming up on uh, on Good Friday or the day that Jesus is crucified. So this is the night before. They're at the Last Supper. They, they finish this supper. And, and remember last week, as we said, they sang a hymn together, which is the Hallel, Psalm 113 through 118, and then they went to the Mount of Olives. So as they're on their way to the Mount of Olives, where the Garden of Gethsemane is, which we're going uh, to look at next week, they're having a conversation as they're going on their way to the Mount of Olives. And so Matthew is going to give us a glimpse here in Matthew 26, verses 31 through 35, of their conversation along the way to the, to the Mount of Olives. So if you found your way there in Matthew 26, if you'll stand with me, we're going to read 31 through 35 together this morning. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. You may be seated. The title of the message this morning is A Friend Most Faithful. A Friend Most Faithful. One of the things that... that God has taught me in recent years is that friendship matters. People have different types of friends. They have different types of personalities. Some people would rather have a few very close friends. Other people are more social and they have 
a lot of people that they would consider their friends and maybe at different depths of relationship, but friendship is different. But one of the things that we should be able to agree on is that friendship is important for everyone. Everyone needs friends. Uh, even in the garden, uh, God said that it was not good for man to be alone. And so he created a helper for him. But part of her role, even in that case, was friendship, was companionship. And so from the very beginning, even before the fall of man, uh, it has never been God's intention for man to live alone, to not have friends. Jesus had friends. He had uh, some that followed him that I'm sure he had a certain level of relationship with, even within the disciples. He had his 12 friends. And even within that, we understand that his relationship with Peter and James and John was unique even from the other disciples. They were able to see things and have conversations with Jesus that they were privileged to that some of the other disciples weren't. And even above and beyond that, we see that Jesus had a very special relationship with the Apostle John, uh, who uh, John refers to himself as the one that Jesus loved, um, which indicates that special thing. And we also will see later that at the cross, the one apostle who was there was John who was there with Mary at the cross. And so we see that even in Jesus' own life that he had different levels of friendship and relationship. We also saw last week that one of these friends that he had, uh, Judas, uh, who he treated like a friend, who he considered a friend, ended up betraying him. And I think if we went around today and shared stories, many of us have probably experienced that also, of someone who we thought was a friend or who we had a relationship with that that ended up not really being who we thought that they were. And that's a very hard experience that we have to have in life. In fact, for some people, uh, that act of betrayal can cause them to distance themselves from friends and from other people in general. And Jesus sets a good model for us in that he didn't do that. Even though Judas had betrayed him, he never forsook any of his friends. He always uh, built that relationship with them. And so as we talk about Friendship and, and this, this idea here of, of him talking to his disciples, I want to point something out that you may not have thought about. Uh, one of the hardest things about not being a Christian, about being an unbeliever in Jesus Christ, is not having a community, not having a group of people to support you. And somebody like me, who grew up in church my whole life, heard the gospel, became a, a Christian at a young age, grew up in that church community of people who loved me and supported me, encouraged me. When my family was struggling, there were people that were there for, uh, with us to come alongside us. It's easy to forget that people don't have that. One of the things that breaks my heart the most when I talk to people, maybe they call the church or they come by and they tell us about their situation. You know, I'm, I'm homeless or I have medical problems or um, I'm just trying to get money for gas or whatever the case may be. One of the things that the pastors always ask them is, how is your local church helping you in your situation? And the answer is always. I have never had anybody answer, I'm a member of a local church, but I'm still in the situation where I'm not getting help. I've never had anybody say that. The answer is they're not in the church. They don't actually believe in Jesus as Savior, and they have nobody. And that's why they are where they are. And so I think uh, one of the things that we have to, to keep in mind as believers uh, with friendship and with faithful friendship is that we have we are blessed to be a part of a local church. We are blessed to lean on one another, to support one another, to pray for one another, to cry with one another, to rejoice with one another, to do all of these things. 
And that is the Christian way. If you say that you're a Christian and you don't have people, if you are not integrated into a local church, either you're not really a Christian or you're very spiritually unhealthy. It is not the way that God has designed for you to be. He does not want us to be isolated. He wants us to be in fellowship with one another. This is how we grow in Christ. Jesus knew this, which is why even though he was the perfect son of God who didn't need friends, God didn't even have to create the world. Within the Godhead and the persons of the Trinity, there's perfect fellowship. They They did not create the world because they were missing something. They did not make you and I because they need friends. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are completely uh, independent and transcendent and have no need of us whatsoever. It's simply for God's own glory that he created us and that he wants to have a relationship with us. And so Jesus didn't need friends, but he got friends anyways. It was important to him to have these people around him because he knew that the mission that God had given him, even as the perfect son of God, could not be completed by one man alone. The same way that a local church cannot complete its mission with one pastor alone or three pastors alone or deacons or any officers of the church. Ephesians 4 says that our responsibility is equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. So if the pastors do the work of the ministry and the saints don't, then the mission doesn't get accomplished. This is the model that Jesus gives us with his disciples. So what we're going to see in this passage is a contrast between two people, two kinds of leadership, two perspectives of themselves, two responses to the will of God. Those two people are Peter and Jesus. So we're going we're gonna to compare and contrast them a little bit in this passage. The first thing that I want you to see here about Peter and Jesus is that this is a fatal di- disclosure that Jesus is giving him, a fatal disclosure. Look back at verses 31 and 32 with me. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Now, when he's talking about striking down the shepherd there, the reason why I had Pastor Chris read Zechariah 13 is because that is what Jesus was quoting, the prophet Zechariah. So again, he is fulfilling in this moment, in this very night, what the prophet Zechariah prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus was born. So we see... In this fatal disclosure, we see two types of strength exemplified here. The first is Peter's strength. What does this verse say about Peter's strength? It says that Peter could not accomplish his desires. Jesus said to them, now this is the 11, remember, Judas is gone at this time. He says, you will all fall away because of me this night. All of you. The strongest, the weakest, the smartest, the one that loves me the most. Whoever you have argued about is the greatest in the kingdom, which they've done multiple times about this point. It doesn't matter. He says, you will all fall away because of me this night. So what do we see about Peter's strength? Peter couldn't accomplish his desires. It didn't matter how much he wanted to do something. God had already decided that that was not part of the plan. You ever feel that way? You ever feel frustrated with God when you're trying to go in a certain direction and You've got your plans of here's what I'm going to do with my education or my career or my family or my house or, uh, or even, what I, even what I want to see happen in the church. I would love for God to pour out a spirit of revival on Waynesville and for hundreds of people to be saved and come to Christ and for this church to fill up and for every gospel preaching church in Waynesville to fill up. 
And I believe that God can do it. But it doesn't really matter what I want in the end. I can't make that happen. Peter really wanted to be the greatest in the kingdom, the strongest, the, the best. That's what he wanted. But that's not what God wanted. And through the prophet Zechariah, again, hundreds, hundreds of years before this, he revealed that God's plan for Peter was for Peter to fail. That's hard for us to accept. That's not, that is not uh, the average gospel that you hear preached in America, the gospel of failure. What, what I'm supposed to say in order to, to be famous on TV right now is I'm supposed to tell you that God's going to give you a breakthrough in your life and that the pressure that you're feeling and the suffering that you're experiencing is just God uh, building up power in you and that he's going to release it and then you're going to have success in that job and you're going to have that relationship that you want and you're going to get that college degree and you're going to get that promotion and that's what, I, that's what I'm supposed to say if I want to be popular on TV. What we see right here is that wasn't God's plan for Peter. His plan at this time, in this moment, was not success. It was failure. So what is God's will for your life? Sometimes God's will for your life is for you to fail. That's something that we can learn from this text. So, so many times when we, when we look at success, it's easy to credit that to God and say, well, you know, God helped me by His grace. We don't think about failing by grace. We think about having victory by grace. But what happens when you don't get that promotion? What happens when you have a, a plan for your family and it doesn't go the way that you had it planned in your mind? What happens when uh, you're trying to get that house or you're trying to start this business or you're trying to do whatever it is and it doesn't work? What happens when you eat all the right things, have the right diet and exercise, and don't watch too much TV and you get cancer? W what happens with that? It happens the same way that it happened with Peter. We can't accept only the good things from God and not the hard things and not the bad things. That's what Job said. How, how can I accept all these blessings of my family and my possessions and all these good things that God gave me and then curse God whenever bad things come into my life? I was never owed any of the good things to begin with. That's a biblical view of suffering and of blessing. Now, of course, we can cheat and read ahead into the book of Acts where Peter doesn't deny Jesus and actually stands for Christ and has an extremely powerful ministry under the guidance and leadership of the Holy Spirit. So we can give you a spoiler alert if you look a little bit ahead that that wasn't God's ultimate plan for Peter. But in this moment, just like in the moment that you may be in your life, victory and success may not be his plan right now. And we have to be okay with that because we know that he sees further than we see. So Peter knew by now, remember, Peter has been with Jesus now for over three years. He has seen him heal lepers. He has given sight to the blind. He has even risen the dead. Peter witnessed all of these kind of things. He has seen Jesus predict what was in the minds of his enemies that they had not even spoken out loud, but Jesus knew their thoughts. He's seen Jesus predict the future, and he's seen Jesus fulfill prophecy. Peter has knowledge. He knows all of these things about Jesus. Remember, it was Peter who said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter was the one who confessed him as the Messiah. And yet, even though he knew that Jesus could see the future, he still couldn't accept that, that this was God's plan. He still couldn't accept it. His knowledge, in other words, was not enough to save him. It was not enough to give him faith. You can know a lot of things and not have faith. He could not accept God's plan for him. What about you? What if God were to show you your failings in the coming week? What if you were to, to have a vision or something right now 
and God were to show you all of the sins that you were going to commit for the next seven days, all the ways that you were going to deny Christ with your actions, with your words, with the way that you treat others in your job, with those uh, unbelievers that you have a conversation with and you just neglect to talk to them about Christ, what if he were to show all of you that right now? Would you believe it or would you deny it? I think, I think if I'm honest, as I've thought about that question myself, I think I would probably, in a lot of cases, do what Peter did. I don't, I don't think I'm any better than he is. Peter's a man. And when somebody shows us our weaknesses or, or they tell us that we're going to fail at something, I guess some people have an attitude where maybe they give up. I'm the kind of person that will, that will try to succeed out of spite. That's the only way I made it through high school. I didn't really care about getting good grades. It's just if a teacher told me I was stupid, then I wanted to work really hard just to prove that person wrong. And so um, that's just my attitude. I'm, I'm not the most spiritual person in the room this morning. So we see Peter's strength there, but then we also see Jesus' strength. Again, we're, uh, Matthew is contrasting this, right? Okay, Peter looks like a really great guy, but how does he compare against Jesus? Well, in Peter's strength, he couldn't accomplish his own desires, but in Jesus' strength, he could accomplish his desires. Jesus was actually able to accomplish everything that he tried to accomplish. And I would remind you that that's good news, especially considering how we talked about the atonement. Jesus said that he was sent to redeem his people, that he has a people that he is coming for, that he is dying for, that he is having the forgiveness of their sins. And we see in John 17, he says again, he has never lost anyone that has ever followed him except the son of perdition, which we know is Judas. And that was because it was God's plan for Judas. That's where our assurance comes from this morning, is that Jesus is able to accomplish everything that he desires to accomplish. Nobody gets in his way. Nobody stops him. He even says, no one can take my life from me. I lay my life down and I take it up again. Do you ever notice that when he's on the cross? And there's all these events and things that is occurring. It says, into your hands I commend my spirit. Think about that. The Romans, even after the crucifixion, the nails, the, the beating, all of these horrible things, it still wasn't the Romans that really killed Jesus. He gave up his spirit. He decided when he was going to die. And he decided when he was going to be raised again. And this is part of the hope that we have in Jesus over other gods and other messiahs and other things that are out there is there is no one else that can compare to him in their ability to accomplish what they have decided to do. Only him. So he could accomplish his desires. Think about this. Jesus, when he says this to him about them falling away, you notice the last part, but after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. There's no doubt in Jesus' mind that he's going to be resurrected here. It's not, I'm going to do my best, guys. You go to Galilee. We'll try to meet up there. Hopefully everything will work out. And no, you're going to fall away. I'm going to accomplish my purpose. And then when I have raised from the dead, we're going to meet. Now, again, remember, some of the disciples still had not figured out that when Jesus was talking about being in the grave three days, he really meant he was going to be in the grave three days. Remember when he went to raise Lazarus, and Lazarus' sister says to him, well, I know that he's going to be raised on the last day, right? I believe in the resurrection, Jesus, that in the end, when you come back, that we're all going to be raised. I believe that that's true. That's not what Jesus meant then. He meant, no, he's going to be raised now after three days, which is, again, foreshadowing of Jesus being raised after three days. And so 
why would he tell them, I will go ahead of you to Galilee if he's talking about some kind of second coming thousands of years in the future? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I'll see you guys in a few days in Galilee. You go there, I'll meet you there. And of course, we see later that's exactly what happens. Again, he's able to predict the future because he decrees the future. Jesus had the exact same confidence about Peter's failure as he did about his own success. So he was sure that Peter was going to forsake him. And he was sure that he was going to die for Peter's sins anyways. And he was sure that he was going to resurrect. And again, as we mentioned last week, how can he be certain about that? Because it's all part of the plan. There's, uh, uh, Jesus' life is not like jazz. It's not improvised. He's not just going along and trying to kind of make his way. Every single detail is planned out. Every single detail. So this challenge of falling away, of, of Peter having to accept the fact that he wasn't going to be enough to follow Jesus, of Jesus telling him, Peter, you're not strong enough. You don't have enough faith. You're not going to be able to make it through this challenge. You were going to fall away. That was the obstacle that was laid in front of Peter that was preventing Peter from following Christ. Now, we have obstacles too. We have obstacles that prevent us from following Christ, whether that is attending church on Sunday morning, whether that is building real friendships in the church like we talked about earlier, whether that is uh, in, our, in our faithful giving to the ministry and to the work of God, whether that is our serving, if God has call, put a call on our life and we're holding back and not fulfilling that calling, whatever it is that is placed in front of us, we have to acknowledge that those are real obstacles this morning. I listed a few out. Some of these are ones that I've personally dealt with over the years, and some of these may relate to you. What are the obstacles that attempt you to deny Christ with your life this morning? Social anxiety is an obstacle. Unconfessed sin. Financial instability. Marital conflict. Rebellious children. Physical exhaustion. Feelings of guilt or unworthiness. Doubts about God or your own salvation. The idolatry of sports, activities, travel, or even sleep. These are things that can prevent us from following Christ, where we deny Christ with our lives. When we use these things as, an, as excuses, we, these are obstacles in front of us, just like Peter had an obstacle in front of him. If we look at our own strength, all of those things are bigger than us. If I listed one of those things out this morning and you thought, that's me, that's definitely stopped me from coming to church before, that stopped me from building closer relationships and trusting people, or that stopped me from serving the Lord, or whatever the case may be. If that's you this morning, you need to make sure that you are not looking at your own strength, but you're looking at Jesus' strength. This is Peter's problem. Peter's problem was he was trying to confess Peter as having the ability to follow Jesus instead of confessing Jesus as having the ability to save Peter. That's his problem. That's our problem today is we think too highly of our own strength like Peter did and not highly enough of Jesus' strength. That same boulder, that, that experience that you have on that list that I just read that cripples you, that keeps you from getting out of bed in the morning on a Sunday, that makes you late, that 
makes you distracted even now as I'm preaching because you're thinking about something that happened before church or something that's going to happen after church. Whatever that is that, that is crippling your mind, it's crippling your walk with Christ, that unconfessed sin that you have that you just can't kick and you just can't let go of it and it's holding you back and you know that even though you love Jesus, if you could just be free of that sin, that you would grow in your relationship with Christ, those things are like boulders that Satan puts in the way of you to prevent you from following Christ. But what I want to tell you this morning is that boulder that's in your pathway is like a penny on the train track of God's decree. It's too big for you. It's nothing to God. It's like putting a penny down on a train track and trying to stop a train. That train's going to roll over that thing and crush it right into the train track. And if Peter would have been thinking more about Jesus than he was about himself, he wouldn't have denied Jesus. And we won't do the same thing either if we think about him rightly this morning. So are you trusting in Christ or in yourself today to overcome these challenges? When you think about these issues in your life, is it, I'm just going to try harder. In Christianity, we put burdens on people still today. If I just read my Bible more, then I'll have freedom. If I just pray more, if I just put some software on my computer or I have somebody that I can talk to, if I just go to therapy, if I just do whatever, none of those things are wrong in and of themselves. But those things don't have the power to save you either. Trying to shore up your own strength. If, if, if I can just become better, then I won't have these sins. That's not the gospel. The gospel is you can't become better. You will never be good enough. You, can't, you cannot be set free. He whom who the Son sets free is free indeed. Not he who tries really hard or is really spiritual or everybody thinks is the best Christian is free indeed. It's he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. If you're under that burden this morning, then you need to go to the Son to be set free. Not, not to another man, not to yourself, but to Christ. So we see this fatal disclosure here. The second thing I want you to see in the text this morning is a feeble destiny. A feeble destiny. Look, look with me at verses 33 and 34 again. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So we see contrast here again between Jesus and Peter. Peter has self-confidence and Jesus has self-confidence. This is how they were at odds with one another. How do we see Peter's self-confidence? Peter overestimated his resolve. Peter, Peter legitimately thought at this point that even though Jesus had said that, and even though Jesus knew the future, somehow he was going to be able to change the future because he thought that Jesus didn't know how strong he was. He thought, well, Jesus, you, you know the heart of the Pharisee. You know what their thoughts are. You know the future. You have the power to control all things. But you don't really know what I'm made of. I'm kind of a big deal. This is Peter's thought about himself. That, you know, everybody else might follow away Jesus, but not me. Those guys, yeah, I've been telling you I'm greater in the kingdom than they are. I've been telling you that, uh, you know, they're not the ones that are speaking all the time, right? How many of the disciples we never see say anything in the Gospels? Those guys, aren't, they're not the best speakers. Uh, they, you know, obviously, Peter, uh, as far as we can tell, had a family, owned a property, 
had probably somewhat of a successful business, he can lean on all these kind of things. I've got money, I've got people, I've got connections, I can do public speaking, uh, you know, I, I, I can fight. Uh, even though he misses later, he's still, you know, is not afraid to pull out a dagger and fight somebody. So he's kind of like, listen, I'm, I'm macho man. I can, do, I can do all this kind of stuff. So all these other guys, they might quit on you, Jesus, but not me. I'm stronger than that. He was self-confident. Examine yourself honestly today. Is the confidence that you have as a Christian based on your own resolve? We have to be careful because, again, this is, this is things that the culture preaches to us, and a lot of churches preach this, of uh, what, is it, what is it that makes you a good Christian? And how much of that has to do with you and nothing to do with Christ? Are you a Christian because of something that you've done or because of something that Christ has done? That's really the question. That's the difference between the gospel and a false gospel. If you want to know one of the easiest ways to tell a counterfeit gospel, counterfeit gospel is about you. That's the easiest way. It's man-centered. It's something that you do. You pray this magical prayer, and now you're going to go to heaven. Or you give this much money to whatever church it is. Or you say, say this amount of prayers and go to confession and do this. Whatever hoops you have to jump through, it's giving you something to trust in other than just throwing your hands up and saying, I have nothing. I can do nothing. I have no ability in and of myself. If it was not for God's mercy and grace, there's no hope for me whatsoever. If you've never been to that point in your life, you're not saved. I can confidently say that this morning. If you have never been to the end of yourself and been in horror and in fear of God, recognizing that if I have to stand before God just as I am right now, I will be destroyed. I will be punished. I am wicked. That Isaiah 6 experience of, of coming into the presence of the Lord and realizing that you are unprotected before Him, before His wrath and His judgment, that you have no protection whatsoever. And the terror of that, that you are going to stand before God in judgment one day and that you, you will be justly and, and absolute worthy of being cast into hell. If you don't get to that place, then when the good news comes to you, it's not good news to you. The gospel isn't for people that think that they're okay. The gospel isn't for people that think that they're a pretty good person and you know God understands their situation and when they die, that, it's not for you. That's what the Pharisees thought. Jesus said, I haven't, I haven't come for the, for the well, I've come for the sick. If you don't think you're sick, then you're not going to take any medicine. And there's a whole lot of people out there, and there's a whole lot of people that come to church every Sunday. I say this all the time to my friends that are pastors. The largest unreached people group in Haywood County is Baptist. And you know why it's hard to reach them? Because they're sitting in a church somewhere this morning, and I can't preach to them. That's why it's hard to reach them. And the reason why is because the gospel that they're hearing is show up to church and show up to Sunday school and put your money in the plate and volunteer and be a deacon and do whatever. For all, I'll jump through all of these hoops and you'll be saved. That's not the gospel. The gospel is apart from him, I can do nothing. All of my value is totally reliant on him and his ability. We see the arrogance of Peter here and the foolishness of it. And, ima- and imagine the shame. It's one thing to humble yourself before God and say, God, I'm just, I just want to get out in front of you. This is why we do a prayer of confession every Sunday. We, can, we, we do a public confession before we continue in worship. Why? 
because we just want to be honest with God up front. God, I'm not putting on a show. I can't hide from you. You know my heart. You know my situation. You know what I've done. I know that I'm forgiven because of Christ, but I, I am not going to stiffen my back at you. I'm not going to look at your holiness or look at your standard of your law and puff myself up in, in any way. I'm going to humble myself, right? Because here's what happens. God resists the proud, but he exalts the humble. That's what the scripture says. If you don't have that posture before God of humility, you will be broken until you do. Now, for some people in this life, they might have what seems to us to be a prosperous life. But remember what the scripture says. When he returns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's not just of those of the believers. So it doesn't matter how hard a person's heart is, how much they hate God, how much they don't believe in God, whatever their excuse is, the Bible says that they will bow their knee. Now, I don't know about you, but if I lock my knees and somebody wants me to bow, there's only one way that they're going to get me to bow, and that's to break my knees. So we can either humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and be exalted in due time, as the Scripture says, or He will humble us. This is what's happening with Peter here. Why? Because Jesus knows that Peter's going to preach at Pentecost. Under the power of the Holy Spirit, how is Peter able to do exactly what he's doing now, to say, I'm going to stand for Jesus. I'm not going to compromise Jesus. Everybody else is going to compromise, but not me. How is he able to do that later and actually to stand and speak the gospel and have this powerful ministry? Well, one, it's the power of the Holy Spirit. We know that because the Holy Spirit had come upon him. But two, he was humble because he, he didn't try to do it until the Holy Spirit was there because he knew that he needed the help of God to do it. So Peter's about to be broken. And we're going to see that in just a couple weeks. God is going to break him so that he can use him. I would urge you this morning, get low on your own before he has to do that to you. If you want to be useful to him, you can't be useful to him and be resistant to him. And, and if he has a plan in your life, don't be like Jonah. Jonah's the worst prophet ever. You, you, read, you read the end of the book of Jonah, Jonah still hates everybody. He's mad at God. He wasn't, he, Jonah didn't have repentance. The Ninevites had repentance, and Jonah didn't have repentance in the end. But God still got his way. Don't be like Jonah and run from God and don't do what he wants until God makes you do what he wants. It's not good for you. So we see Peter's self-confidence, and then we see Jesus' self-confidence. How, how is Jesus confident here? He's confident because he knew Peter's limitations. Peter didn't know his own limitations. That happens to us all the time, right? Uh, I, I, ha I have a lot of uh, physical limitations, okay? Now, I am an adult male, and our culture assumes that as an adult male, I'm able to lift heavy things and do hard labor and all of that. And I know many of you do that, okay? Um, apparently, that is not the way that God has designed my physique to work because... There have been many times where I try to pick something up that is beyond my limitations for me to pick up, and that's how you end up hurting yourself. And we often do that, don't we? I'm sleepy and I'm driving, and I'm just going to drive a little bit longer and everything will be fine. Uh, uh, I'm with some friends, and they're drinking, and I can just have this drink and everything is going to be fine. Or I'm with this person of the opposite sex, and uh, even though the situation is a little compromised, I'm pretty strong and everything's going to be fine. We do, we do that all the time. That's essentially kind of how we end up in sin, is thinking that our limitations are beyond what they are. Of course, the devil's encouraging us to do that, which is what's always happened from the beginning. Like, 
this is just a piece of fruit. You eat fruit every day. Like you're strong, you're strong enough to handle this. God, God doesn't think that you are, but I believe in you. Right? You can you can do it. That's what the devil does with us all the time. It's just one Sunday. It doesn't really matter. You're not gonna go to hell. It's fine. Whatever whatever the excuse is, like you know your limitations. You'll you'll be fine. We don't know our limitations. We don't. And if you think that you do, just go ahead and bring that a few notches lower because that's where you're actually at. Peter thought, well, my limitations, my, my faith is so great. Jesus, you, you yourself said that I had great faith. Remember when he confessed, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's, not God. it's not man that has revealed this to you, Peter, but it's God that has revealed this to you. And the disciples are always piping up trying to get praise from Jesus of, you know, look at what we did, Jesus, and they're trying, they're trying to get kudos from him all the time. And Peter did. So he's thinking, Jesus, remember, you said that I had great faith, so I'm not like these other guys. I'm the one that, that confessed you as the Messiah. Jesus knows your limitations too this morning, the same way that he knew Peter's. In fact, look at how, again, how precise it is. He doesn't just say, no, I'm, I'm telling you, Peter, I'm telling you, I know that you're going to fail. He's not doing that. He's specific. This night, before a rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. That's specific. Why is it that Peter weeps when he denies him the third time and he hears the rooster? It's because, for one, he's humbled because he realizes that he wasn't who he thought he was. He realizes that Jesus knew him better than he knew himself. And he realized that the same one that prophesied that, that actually is the Son of God, is about to be crucified and he can't do anything about it. The helplessness of it, the powerlessness of it, is what broke Peter. God is not most glorified by us handling our burdens appropriately in our own strength. He gives us more than we can handle. Now, if you've grown up in the South like me, you've heard this a million times. Well, God won't give you more than, than he can handle. For one, there's no Bible verse that says that. And two, anybody that's actually lived real life knows that that's not a true statement. If you've lived life for more than a couple years, you've definitely been in situations that are way more than you can handle. That's how the world works. Now, what they mean is, is, is the passage in 1 Corinthians that says, he will not tempt you beyond what you are able, but will always provide a way of escape out of temptation. In other words, if you sin, it's your fault. You can't say God didn't give me a way out. That's what that verse means. It doesn't mean that your life's never going to be hard. Because you have this whole mentality of there of, you know, well, uh, this negative thing came into my life, but I just didn't receive it because God's not going to give me more than I can handle. Well, you just received it. When you get that diagnosis or when you get that letter of termination from your job or you get an eviction notice from your house, you just received it. There's no praying it away. It's in front of your face. It's real. The question is, what are you going to do with it then and how does it affect your relationship with God? Because what you see, nine times out of ten, you see all these musicians. I just saw another one last week, these Christian musicians that are all like deconstructing and abandoning Christianity. It's because they grew up with that kind of faith and they were musically talented and they got fast-tracked into the limelight and they were never saved to begin with. And something bad happened in their life and they're like, well, God must not be real because I was told that I wasn't going to be able to give more than I can handle. And this feels like it's more than I can handle. So if I'm on my own, then I don't need God or church or anything else. I'll just do my own thing. And that's where people are going right now. It's not because they were preached a saving gospel. We don't want that for anybody in here. I don't want any of these kids to grow up 
and think that they're Christians and not really be Christians because they heard some gospel that told them that their life's going to be unicorns and rainbows all the time. That's not the truth. God is most glorified when we cast our burdens onto Him so that His strength is displayed in us. How is God glorified? It's not by you doing really great with the burdens you're given. Good, good job, you handled that situation. That's not how God's glorified. God's glorified when we go to Him and say, you do it. And then He gets the credit for it. Love the story of Hezekiah when the Assyrians are coming in to attack. 300,000 men coming in to attack Israel. Israel's army is weak. They have no way of defeating this army. They don't, they don't know what to do. They didn't say, all right, every man, woman, and child, you know, let's put a spear in their hand and we're just going to hope for the best, guys. And that's not what they did. He took the letter from the king of Assyria and he went into the temple and he laid it before the Lord and basically said, God, this is your problem. They're coming against your people. You know that we can't do it. We don't have the power. You have to do it. In the middle of the night, the Lord sends one angel, comes through, wipes out the entire army. The king goes running because he wakes up and his whole army is dead, goes back to Assyria and gets assassinated. And God cripples the entire empire of Assyria in, in a matter of a few days by himself. No military conflict, no battle. There are so many problems that we have in our lives. These obstacles that I'm talking about, these things that we deal with, that can simply be removed by prayer, but we just don't. There's so many things that, we can, that, that he wants us to bring to him in prayer and just say, Lord, I can't, I can't overcome this sin. Lord, I don't know why I'm so anxious all the time. Lord, I don't know why I'm so full of doubt and unbelief. Lord, I don't know why my kids don't act right or I can't get along with my spouse. I don't know why I'm tired all the time. I feel guilty. I don't even know if you hear my prayers. I just want to go to sleep. <laughs> well, whatever the excuse is, there's so many of those things that we think I'm just going to drink more coffee or I'm just going to read this book or I'm just going to go to this counselor or I'm just going to do whatever. Instead of going to the right person and saying, this is your problem. You told me to walk in righteousness. I can't do it. So either you're going to have to help me do it or I'm just not going to be able to do it. And then all of a sudden you get out of the way and the Holy Spirit in you is now in control and you will find that you have more freedom than you've ever had. You have peace. You have joy. All of the fruits of, of the Spirit are increasing in your life. You're seeing incredible things happen in your own spirit of being changed as a person and more into the likeness of Christ because you're not in the way anymore. And so if you're struggling this morning, one of the things you need to do is stop struggling. Just go to him in prayer and just say, I, I can't. I've done everything I know how to do. I can't do it. You, you have to do it. I'm just letting it go. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. One of my favorite martyrs in the early church is Polycarp. Polycarp was actually, he was actually a personal disciple of the Apostle John. Uh, when he died, he was probably one of the only living people at that time that still knew one of the original apostles. And so he was personally discipled by the Apostle John and then became um, a, a bishop of Smyrna, I believe, at one point and was pastoring this whole area. He was martyred at 86 years old. He was an old man. He just let him come in and arrest him. He had his servants feed the, the guys that came in to arrest him. He offered them food and said, while you guys are eating, can I just have an hour to go pray? And it says they, they felt guilty for arresting him because he just 
He let him arrest him after he had some time in prayer. They took him. Uh, they're they're threatening him with these things. You know, we're gonna we're going to uh, feed you to the wild animals. Okay, we're gonna burn you. We're gonna burn you alive. Well, I'd rather be burned alive for a few minutes than for all eternity. So, I'm not gonna renounce Christ. Eighty six years old. He's, he 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 looks at the proconsul at the Roman proconsul and tells him, he's been. God has been faithful to me for 86 years. Why would I betray him now? An old man. Can you, can you imagine how silly the Romans would look to bring this feeble 86-year-old man out into the Colosseum? Everybody's going crazy because they know he's this big deal Christian, you know, and they're, oh, he's going to renounce Jesus. And for him to just get out there and say, not going to happen. Like, I've, I've lived too long. I've seen too much. God's done too much for me. There's, there's nothing you can do to me. And he goes out there. And they ended up tying him to a stake, and they're getting ready to light him on fire, and everybody's cheering, you know. Uh, at that time, they were cheering down with the atheists because they thought the Christians were atheists because they denied the Roman gods. So, ironically enough, they were cheering down with the atheists. And here's his prayer. Here's the prayer that he prayed at 86 years old as he was being set on fire. He said, O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels, powers, and every creature, and of all the righteous who live before you. I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs, sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life, both of soul and body, through the immortality of the Holy Spirit. May I be received this day as an acceptable sacrifice, as you, the true God, have predestined, revealed to me, and now fulfilled. I praise you for all these things. I bless you and glorify you, along with the everlasting Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. To you with him, through the Holy Ghost, be glory both now and forever. Amen. It's the way this man died at 86 years old in front of the Romans. Now, why was he able to do what he did? Why did he not fall away like Peter did? We know that there was a man, Germanicus, right before this, there was a man that actually did give up and confess Caesar as Lord. And Polycarp didn't do it. What's the difference? You can tell from his prayer. He knew that the strength wasn't coming from him. He knew, he knew that, he, that Polycarp wasn't enough to be faithful to Christ, but he knew that Jesus was enough. And his prayer reflects that of who was on his mind as he was dying. It wasn't like Peter of, not me. You can't make, you can't make me bring the animals on. I'll fight them all. That wasn't his attitude. His attitude was, to you be the glory. I'm a sacrifice for you. You can do with my body whatever you want to do as long as it pleases Jesus. That was his response. That's the difference. So we saw a fatal disclosure in the beginning, and then we see this feeble destiny for Peter. Lastly, I want you to see a foolish denial. A foolish denial. Look at verse 35. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. Now this tells me uh, Peter was probably a pretty persuasive speaker. And of course, we know later he seemed to be that way. And so for being a, a fisherman and not an orator, he must have had some pretty good speaking skills on his own, apart from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But we see, again, a contrast here in this denial between Peter's leadership and Jesus' leadership. Death was Peter's greatest capability. 
What's the greatest way that Peter could prove that he was loyal to Jesus? It was by dying. He said, I'll gi- I will give up my life for you, Jesus. This is the best that I can give you. And we see that the disciples apparently had confidence in Peter because then they came along behind him. Yes, that's right, Jesus. We're all, we will all go to the cross. All of us will. And a lot of them did eventually. But they were willing to follow Peter's leadership. There's a question that I want to ask, especially for my generation. So I'll, in June, I'll be 35. I'm an older millennial now. It's a question that a lot of people are asking right now with, with the situation in Ukraine. But the question is, what are you seriously willing to give your life for this morning? There was a survey that was going around where it said somewhere around 55%, I think, of surveyed Americans said that they would actually go and fight if their country was under attack. I think that's probably pretty accurate. I, I know a lot of guys my age are not interested in military service or just any kind of fighting in general. And I'm not saying we should be excited uh, to ever have to combat somebody, whether that's in our home or our community or overseas or whatever. Obviously, as Christians, we don't delight in violence. We don't want to see that happen. The Bible's really clear that there's things that we need to be willing to die for. There, there are virtuous things that if you sacrifice your life in the pursuit of those virtues, that it's actually worth a human life to sacrifice it. I think, I think we've forgotten that as a society, that there are things that are worth dying for. There's a lot of people that didn't get to spend time with their grandparents over the last two years because they were afraid that somebody was going to die. So they ended up with nothing when that person was finally gone. We shut, we shut people in buildings, right, and, and allowed them no visitors, allowed them no contact to preserve their life, and in the process they lost it. I think for some of those people, if you would have asked them, would it have been worth you dying to spend that the last two years with your family, they would have said yes. I think a lot of them would. What is it that you're willing to give your life for this morning? Your family? You know, we say, you know, I'm going to stand up for my family. If I'm in the house and somebody breaks in the house and they threaten my wife and kids and I have to choose between their lives and that person's life, I've already made the choice. It's going to be that person's life. A lot of us own things like firearms for that specific purpose. We hope that we never have to use them. We hope that it never comes to that. But we're prepared because we're going to say, if I have to take a person's life in order to preserve those that I am charged with caring for, I've already made the decision in, in my mind of what I have to do with that. Some people do that for their country. A lot of people have sacrificed for their country and still are, even today. Whether that's another country, like Ukraine is on our minds now, Myanmar, there's several other places where people are sacrificing their lives today. They will die today um, because of there's certain values, there's virtues that they're pursuing that are doing that. Some people will still do that for our country because they want us to be able to gather in here without the police kicking the door in. And it's cost a lot of people their lives for us to be able to do this right now, and it's going to continue to cost people their lives because the devil doesn't want this to happen, and he's going to continue to work against this. And there's going to have to be people that are going to say, if it takes my life for my kids or my grandkids to be able to worship freely, then that's a a price that I'm willing to pay. My fear is there's not a lot of people my age that are willing to do that for those that are coming up under them. 
are you living like those things are precious today? You know, you say, I would give my life for your family. You know what's harder than taking a bullet for your spouse or your kids? Just being sweet to them all the time. Any of us can get enough adrenaline in a moment and say, bring it on, I'm going to die. And then it's over, right? But when it's 9 o'clock at night and your kids are screaming and you just want to go to bed, or you keep getting woke up in the middle of the night because you got a new baby or whatever the case is uh, in your family, it's a harder sacrifice instead of in a moment to have to do that every single day of your life. It's harder. Dying for Christ is difficult, but living for him can be even harder. Think about Polycarp. What was harder for him? In a few moments, to be burned at the stake and probably be dead in 10 or 15 minutes, or to live for 86 years of his life as a faithful testimony to Christ. I think he would tell you that 86 years was way harder than the last year of his life. And I think for us in our Christian walk, it's real easy to, uh, to say we would lay our life down for Christ, but we, just not today, just not, just not this afternoon. Like I'll do it in an emergency situation, but I'm not going to make that hard choice right now. I'm going to keep things as they are right now. So, so here's, the, here, here's the deal. Don't act like you would die for Christ this morning if your lost family member or your neighbor hasn't heard the gospel from you recently. If you know of somebody in your life right now that's not a Christian and you haven't talked to them about the gospel, don't think that you're going to be a martyr. Because being a martyr is way harder than talking to somebody about Jesus. And if we, if we aren't faithful in the small things, we're not going to do the greater things. And so it's easy for us to think, well, if a gun's to my head and I have to confess Jesus while I do it, you might. And we believe that the Holy Spirit will help you in that moment to be a faithful witness to Christ. But what about all those missed opportunities? What about that legacy that you, that you could have left behind you of faith, like Polycarp did, or even like Peter does eventually? Paul said that he didn't come to the churches with eloquent, with eloquent words, but with power. That's what he said. And we should do the same. What is the power that we're bringing to somebody? You don't have to stand up here and talk in front of people. You don't have to be a, a talented musician or whatever it is in your mind that you think some kind of more Christian person is than you are. You don't have to be any of those things. The gospel is the power of God into salvation. That, that's it. If you want to bring power instead of eloquent speech, you just tell people about Jesus. That's what it, that's what it is. And if you have the guts to talk to somebody about Jesus, then you just might have the guts to die for Jesus. But it doesn't work the other way around usually. And so if we fail this week, we, we may fail in the end, whenever that comes. And so we have to be serious today and not wait for a crisis in order to get serious about our faith in Christ. So we saw Peter's leadership there. Look at Jesus' leadership. Peter's greatest capability was death. That was the best that he could do for God. What's Jesus' greatest capability? Resurrection. Jesus can do a whole lot more than Peter can. Peter can die in a moment. Peter couldn't even die for his own sins. How would Peter dying have helped any of us? It wouldn't have. Jesus was capable of way more than Peter is. He's capable of way more than you are. Because you can't die for your own sins either, or the sins of your kids, 
or the sins of your loved ones or the sins of your coworkers or whoever it is that's on your heart this morning, you can't die for that person's sins. But Jesus has died for sins. That's part of the good news. The disciples had confidence in Peter, but Jesus had confidence in his father. That's where his confidence lied. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Where did Jesus find the strength to endure the suffering, not only physically but spiritually, of taking upon the wrath of God for our sins on himself? How was he able to have the strength to endure? It was the joy set before him. If you, uh, I spent some time in South Dakota once, and it was really interesting because it's so wide open there that when they have storms, you can see over the clouds because the clouds are lower. And, and I can remember seeing thunderstorms, and you could see a whole thunderstorm like way out on the distance. You could see all the way around it, and you could see the sun behind it. And it was so interesting uh, because normally here, when, the, when it gets really cloudy, you don't really see the sun through the clouds. It's just dark. And it always makes me think about that. It was the joy set before him. He was able to see the light on the other side of the darkness and concentrating on that light was what gave him the strength to get to where he needed to go. And it's the same thing in your situation today with your own sin, with your own walk with Christ, that if you are looking to Christ and his power, his resurrection power in your life, uh, there's no sin that can stop you from coming to him. You will come to him if you can see, if you can see that, if you're able to do that this morning. God has a plan for history, and you are a part of that plan. It's easy to read the Bible and think, well, these are just wonderful stories about all these really spiritual people, and God had all these amazing things in their lives. And of course, if you read the Bible a little closer, which a lot of people in our culture don't do, all these are like wicked, terrible people, honestly. A lot of us could, could look at a lot of these disciples and these guys and just be like, why would Jesus pick this guy? Like a fisherman? Like you got all these Bible scholars and everybody over here? He didn't pick any of them. He didn't pick the same people that we would pick. And, and, you, and you look, and that's one of the beautiful parts about Scripture is it's just ordinary people, which means if they do something extraordinary, it has to be from an extraordinary God and not an ordinary person. That's how it gives him his glory. We're just like they are. Now, nobody's probably writing down the stories of our lives. I don't think there'll be a biography written about any of us as far as I know. Maybe some of you kids in here, hopefully. Somebody will write something about your, the great works that you've done for the Lord in a few years. But God still has a plan for you. You are not an accident. Your existence is not meaningless, as some would tell you. You might think, well, yeah, I'm a Christian and I'm saved, you know, and I'm here in Waynesville, but I mean, it's not like Jerusalem. I mean, I'm not doing anything like that. You're doing exactly what they were doing. This morning, we're doing exactly what, what they were doing in the early church. This right here is how they were able to take over the Roman Empire. It's how they were, they were able to bring uh, Christianity into North America everything that you see today regarding the gospel happened from people doing exactly what we're doing right now. So let us not underestimate the power. The scripture says, do not despise small beginnings. Let us not underestimate the power because the power is not in how many people are sitting in the pew right now, how much money we have, where our location is in the county, uh, uh, what kind of cool you know, special effects we have on the internet or whatever else it is. It's simply God saves people. He saves people in Waynesville. He saved people in Jerusalem. He's going to keep saving people until Jesus returns. And the way he does that is we just speak about him. So if you want to see God do something, open your mouth and speak about him, and you will see him do things. That it's as simple as that. And then the burden, again, relies on him. So what about you this morning? Are you going to be like Peter, confident in your ability until you end up forsaking everything in the end? 
Or are you going to be like Jesus, confident in God's ability to keep you until the end? If you're doubting your salvation this morning, you're thinking too much about yourself and not enough about Christ. If you're doubting whether or not that person that you've been praying for is going to get saved, you're thinking too much about your ability and not enough about God's ability. If you are struggling with a besetting sin this morning, you're thinking that you're not powerful enough to do it, and you're thinking too much about yourself and not enough about Jesus. It's what it comes down to. When these obstacles come into our life, God's solution is not for us to try, up, try harder and pull us up by our own bootstraps like the American way. That's not, that's not the Bible. That's the American way. The Bible is let go. Confess to him. I can't do this. Apart from you, I can do nothing. It has to be your work in me that does all these things, and you receive all of the glory for everything that comes out of it. We all want a friend who talks like Peter, but what we need is a friend who acts like Jesus. I hope to see all of you next week, but we may not make it that far. So don't sit on the fence of faith this morning. If that's where you're at right now and you're sitting on the fence, you're going back and forth between King Jesus and King you. Don't sit on the fence this morning. Be determined to follow the one who resurrected. Jesus has more power than you do. He offers more than you do. His promises are greater than anything that you can achieve in your life. So stop trying to compete with him. You're not going to win. Get off the fence. Surrender to King Jesus. Come into his kingdom. Be adopted into his family. Receive the inheritance that he has laid aside for everyone who comes to him. Be determined to follow the one who has resurrection power because he's worthy this morning. Let's pray. Father, your word says that we have a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And we know who that is this morning. Jesus has proven himself worthy. We know that you were worthy before this world was ever made, that you always have been worthy, that your glory is incomprehensible, and yet you have revealed so much to us. Forgive us, Lord, where we've been like Peter and we've resisted your will. We've resisted the truth that we are weak and that apart from you we can do nothing. Humble us under your mighty hand this morning. Whatever it is that, that is weighing us down today, whatever it is that is burdening us, Lord, you said that your yoke is easy and your burden is light and that in you we can find rest for our souls. I know I need more rest this morning, Lord, and I think I'm not the only one. And so, Lord, if we feel the yoke of this life, it means, because, it means it's, we haven't given it to you. It means that we're trying to bear up under it, Lord, and it's too much for us this morning. And so, Father, help us to roll those burdens off onto your shoulders that was, that was able to endure the cross, that was able to bear the condemnation of your wrath for all of your people and stand up under it victorious. You are strong enough for everything that we need and we are weak this morning and we confess that and we thank you that in your mercy all of your promises are yes and amen and that when we come to you, Lord, you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so we ask for your help, Lord Jesus.